Uh, I'm in an interesting season in my life where you have spent all of these years instructing, infusing everything that you possibly can into your children only to watch them go and see now what they're going to do about that. Now, it's one thing when they're in your home and you're able to instruct them and uh, they're doing as you say, and you can presume that they're doing doing what you're saying. You can, as a parent, create a, a a form of obedience, even if the heart is not there, and make them do certain things so that they seem to do as you've instructed. But you never really know until the instruction stops. And I, I wonder, as we come in now to to Second Kings, and we're going to look at a very young king. And he was under the instruction of a priest at that time. And what that priest thought about how that was all going to play out for this king that he was mentoring and teaching and instructing in the ways of God. We're going to notice before we get to that big issue of this new king over Judah that there's more turmoil happening uh, in the land of Judah. It is interesting as you come into Second Kings chapter 11 that you now have a focus back on Judah. Most of our time in First and Second Kings is really all about Israel. Very little is said uh, about Judah. The focus is Elijah. The focus is Elisha. And their work is in the northern nation of Israel primarily. And we're coming now to a, a turning of the focus and paying attention to some of the things that are going on in the south. We've seen in the north that the, the nation is pretty well written off. It is time for judgment. They're not doing what God says. The, the lineage of Ahab has pretty well corrupted the northern nation and is moving to the brink of its exile and destruction. However, when the focus turns to the southern nation of Judah in chapter 11, we're told something particularly strange where we see that in verse 1 of chapter 11 of 2 Kings that Athaliah, the mother of Ahazai, saw that her son was dead and she arose and destroyed all of the royal family. Now, to set up what's going on, we're going to have to figure out who this Athaliah character is because she seems to just suddenly pop into the scene and is taking control of Judah and is now going to reign for six years as this queen over Judah. Now, we didn't really get a sense of this earlier on in the text, but we now become to realize that Athaliah is the, the daughter of Ahab and how she has come into this position as you remember a few chapters back we saw this strange thing where Jehoshaphat who's called a good king of Judah has his son Jehoram marry the daughter of Ahab we weren't given a name back there it turns out it was this woman Athaliah but another thing that is told to us is that when they're, they're married, that once Jehoram takes the throne and Athaliah, his wife, his queen are, are reigning, Jehoram goes about wiping out all of his brothers so that there will be no threats to the throne. It is only going to be his sons that are going to take over and that's the end of it. And you might not think that is a, a very big deal, but 
when Jehoram dies, Ahaziah takes the throne. And you might remember what we saw uh, in the last section. When he goes up and visits the king of Israel, he gets caught up by Jehu and gets wiped out. That's why he only reigns for a year. The northern nation king is killed as well. Jehu is purging all of Ahab's house. So consider what we have now is that Jehoram has taken out all of his brothers. His son, Ahaziah, is now is supposed to be on the throne and reigning, but he's killed. And now in verse 1 of chapter 11, we're told, so Athaliah's great plan is to kill all her grandsons and take all the throne then to herself. Great times in Judah. <laughs> Great times in Judah. As you would think, well, here's the better nation, right? But they're just as bad as Israel. And so that is what is going on in an effort to maintain her throne and power. Now, you might read this and say, now, what is the big deal about all of this? But you will notice in 2 Kings 11 and verse 2, we're told of something very important happening. It says that we're told, Jehoshaphat, the daughter of Joram, uh, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away uh, from among the king's sons who were being put to death. And she put him and his nurse in the bedroom, and they hid him from Athaliah. And so he was not put to death, and he remained with her six years, hidden in the house of the Lord while Athaliah reigned over the land. I want you to see the big deal here is God had made a promise about a lamp in Jerusalem through David, that there would always be a lineage through David through whom the Messiah would ultimately come. If Athaliah is successful in killing all the grandsons, that lamp goes out. And there are no more sons that trace back to David. That's the end of it. And so you have this amazing Moses-like scene happening here in verse 2, where it turns out that the sister of Ahaziah gets one son, all the other sons are killed, but grabs this one baby and runs and hides and stows him away in the temple of God for the six years in which Athaliah reigns over the land. And so success on her part would have been the absolute end of the messianic lineage. But notice then what happens is that we are told about an individual here in verse 4. His name is Jehoiada. He is a priest in the, in the temple of God. And as he is caring for the, this, this child and allowing him to hide in, in the temple, the seventh year comes uh, of this reign of Athaliah. And what he does in verse 4, we're told that he gathers essentially the captains of the armies and makes them swear allegiance to the rightful king that should be on the throne. And once they have made their allegiance and have sworn that they will uphold the rightful king who should be on the throne, he then reveals Joash as the one who should be on the throne. And so Jehoiada gets everything set to be able to put Joash on the throne. We've got the whole army in place. We've got Joash. All right. And so what Jehoiada does is he brings out the child. You can imagine the seven, eight-year-old child. Bring him out and say, here is the rightful king. Here is a son of Ahaziah who should, should be on the throne. You can imagine all the commotion. We're told the cheering, the clapping. Everybody's so excited that the rightful king is on the throne. 
Athaliah hears the commotion going on, finds out what's happening, yells treason, obviously expecting her bodyguards, her army to go and deal with the threat. But Jehoiada's already taken care of that and nobody moves an inch. And as she's yelling for treason, Jehoiada basically tells the the guards, uh, go get her (laughs) and deal with her and kill her for usurping the throne and attempting to do what she's doing. I would lump her in. This is part of the judgment of Ahab's house. This purging of anyone associated with Ahab continues as Athaliah being a daughter of Ahab and Jezebel and acting just like them. Just imagine trying to exterminate all your grandsons so that you can be king. What what a person you have there uh, in, in her. And so she then is ultimately put to death. But I want you to notice what happens after that. I want you to notice what Jehoiada the priest does in verse 17. In verse 17, Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people that they should be the Lord's people. And also between the king and the people. I want you to notice that we have a a covenant renewal moment that seems to happen here in Judah. That the, the, the evil queen is dead. The rightful son of David, king on the throne, has now been established. And with him on the throne, verse 17, making this point, a covenant is being made between the Lord and the king. And the people. And I want you to notice the results of this covenant renewal of the people being joined to the rightful king and being joined to the Lord is in verse 18. It says the people of the land, they went to the house of Baal and they tore it down his altars and his images. They broke it in pieces and they killed marrying the priest of Baal before the altar and the priests posted watchmen over the house and over the cities. They took the captains, the carriage, the guards and all the people of the land and they brought the king down from the house of the Lord, marching through the gate of the guards of the kings of the house. And he took his seat on the throne of the kings. And all the people of the land rejoiced and the city was quiet after Athaliah had been put to death with the sword at the king's house. What I want you to see is with the rightful king on the throne and the covenant renewed, you get a response of repentance, a response of renewal and restoration. The people go and destroy the temple to the Baals. They get rid of the priests of the Baals. They start tearing down the altars and tearing down the idols. There is a purging that is going on in the land. And notice the purging and the renewal is to such a degree that when Joash sits on the throne, there is rejoicing and there's peace. You can imagine the chaos of Athaliah's reign. And now there is peace in the land. And order is restored and the rightful king in his his place. And you just get the sense of this is going to be the point that Judah is going to turn the corner. The nation is going to get better. We're back on track. Lineage of David, son on the throne, Jehoiada the priest, the bales have been ripped out. Surely this is going to be the defining moment where everything points to restoration and hope and renewal. Chapter 12. In the seventh year of Jehu, 
Joash, Jehoahash, same as Joash, began to reign, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba. And Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all his days because Jehoiada the priest instructed him. It's an ominous little sentence that's being given there. Everything looks good. The statement is he's doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord. He's going to do a great job. He's the king that we need. But there's this little almost curious ending that He's doing what's right in the sight of the Lord under the watch of Jehoiada. It's because of Jehoiada giving Joash instructions that he's doing good all of his days. Now watch how this plays out. As time marches on, we're not told how much time goes by, but Joash shows a desire to want to repair the temple of the Lord. This is certainly fascinating. The text never tells us that Nobody seemed to care about the temple anymore. Apparently, it's becoming dilapidated and falling apart, and repairs need to be made. Restoration needs to be made. This is the Lord's house, and nobody has seemed to care about that, has interest about it. But Joash does, and he makes a decree, and he says, here's what I want to have done in verse 4 of, of chapter 12, that money would be gathered and free will offerings would be made and donations would be made so that repairing the Lord's house could Happen. But what is so interesting is verse 6 is, says, But by the 23rd year of King jo- Joash's reign, the priests had made no repairs on the house. Now, we're not told when he made the decree. We shouldn't necessarily assume that he made the decree when he was 8, and now we're in the 23rd year of the reign, and look at all this time that's gone by. But clearly a significant enough amount of time has gone by that the statement is being made. The money has been collected. It seems like everything should be happening. Repairs should be made. But no repairs have been made. In fact, the king himself wants to know in verse 7, bringing in Jehoiada saying, why have we not fixed the temple? What is going on? All of this time is passing by. Year after year is going on. So why don't we get this done? What is so fascinating is an answer is not given. There's no, well, you know, there's that guy over there and he's just a real swindler and that's what's going on or my priests are lazy and that's why we're not doing anything or we lost the money, it was an accounting error. There's no answer that's given as to here's what the big deal is. The only thing that we are given is that no more money should be made until, I mean, no more money should be collected until we're going to actually use the money to repair the house. And so Jehoiada then basically verse nine creates a lockbox of sorts so that the donations will actually be held and kept. And finally, the repairs are being made. Now, I, we're not told exactly what's going on. It is interesting that the chronicler makes a point that the sons of Athaliah seem to be raiding the house of, uh, of God. And maybe that's why the lockbox lock answer kind of works is that perhaps that's what's going on is as they're collecting the money, there's some swindlers from the leftovers of Athaliah's house that are still a part of this. But whatever the case is, after all of these delays, all these delays, all of this money is collected and the repairs begin to be made. Uh, even told specifically that everyone is doing a, a proper work uh, and, and no one is taking anyone any of the money. Uh, uh, in fact, verse 15, they did not even ask an accounting 
for the men who did the who, whose hand they delivered the money to pay out the workers for they dealt honestly. The, the work is being done honestly. The money is being used properly. And so work on the temple is being done. And you would say, boy, let's just put the period right there. And Joash died and it was all great. And what a reign and what a picture of what's to come. Verse 17. And at that time, Hazael, remember him, king of Syria, went up and fought against Gath and took it. That's in Philistia. And when Hazael set his face to go up against Jerusalem, Joash, the king of Judah, took all the sacred gifts that Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Ahaziah, his fathers, the kings of Judah, had dedicated and his own sacred gifts. And all the gold that was found in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and of the king's house. And he sent those to Hazael, king of Syria. And then Hazael went away from Jerusalem. It looks so good for Joash. But there was this ominous statement back in verse 2. When Jehoiada is telling him what to do and teaching him, Joash is doing the things of God. Hazael now threatens to attack Jerusalem. The first thing Joash does is he empties the temple of the Lord. He empties the palace. He pulls out all the gold and sends it as a payoff to get Hazael to not attack Jerusalem. Rather than depending on God and trusting in God, he depends on the bank account, pays off the king of Syria and sends him away. So here's what I want to talk about tonight with the few minutes that we have in terms of these two chapters and applications. The first is the positive image that's given in this text. And then our second point will be the negative teaching that's given in light of that. First, the beauty of what you see the people doing when the rightful king is put on the throne, when the covenant has been renewed between the Lord and the king and the people The people repent. The people renew themselves. Joash wants to get the temple fixed. Everybody is excited. Everybody wants to serve God. And this should be the ultimate picture of what this looks like for us. Because our King Jesus is enthroned. He is reigning. He has made a covenant between the Lord himself and us. And the responsibility on our part then is to have that kind of devotion, that kind of repentance, that kind of renewal, that we will purge the idols out of our hearts, purge the idols out of the land, that we will serve God. We will follow him with all of our heart because we have our rightful king and he is reigning and we are going to follow him and we are going to enjoy the peace and prosperity that he gives to us. That's what this sermon and that's what this text should be all about. Yay, Joash. Yay that everybody's back on track and great renewal has happened. But I want you to see what happens in all of this. As soon as difficulty came, all of the devotion and all of the repentance and all of the renewal evaporated. It all looks good until the king of Syria says, I'm going to attack you guys. 
And now Joash isn't trusting God anymore. Now all of that depend on God. We're going to serve him. We're going to trust him. And we're going to follow him. All goes completely out the window at this moment. And he turns to his wealth and uses that as the opportunity to get the king of Syria to leave. And I want us to just spend a moment and just be reflective of this truth that God is revealing in this text. How often do we go through these kinds of important steps in our lives where we're repentant? We are ready to devote ourselves to God and we are rededicating our lives and we are restoring our hearts and we are going to renew ourselves back to God and things are going to be different going forward. Only to have the first threat cause us to abandon it all. Only to have tomorrow come and to go back to what we've always been doing. It is a fascinating image to see of what's being portrayed with Joash. That Joash seems to be on the right track, says all the right things, but then when that faith is put to a test, it's not there. And immediately he caves in, immediately gives up all these things. And I just want us to consider how many times have we said tomorrow's going to be different. Tomorrow we're going to be stronger for God. Tomorrow is going to be a new day. Tomorrow we're going to purge the idols out of our hearts. It's going to be different this time around, only for it to not be different this time around. How many times does that renewal fall apart? And I want us to consider how many times is it because difficulty arises and that repentance disintegrates. When things get tough, Now that devotion wanes. And I want us to consider that that's exactly what Jesus was talking about. When he told a parable about a sower. And he was describing how seed was cast in all of these different places. And the response of what that seed was able to generate and the kinds of soil that it landed on. And you see Jesus speaking about the one that is sown on rocky ground. This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. But he has no root and it's short-lived. Well, why is it short-lived? Notice the very next sentence. When distress and persecution comes because of the word, fall away. See, Jesus was putting his finger on something. About there's going to be a sort of people that when things get hard, that's when they're not going to have faith anymore. When things get challenging, that's when trust is going to erode. And that's what you see happening with Joash. Is that ruling as a righteous king, purging the idols, didn't get rid of all the high places. But in general, he's doing a good job and is considered doing good before God. But there is this critical failure that is shown here. And the critical failure is when life got tough. Didn't trust God anymore. And things became difficult. He gave up. And it's important for us to ask ourselves if we are going to follow through with our desire for repentance, renewal, and restoration. 
And to consider this, I'm just going to put it in a form of a question and talk about it these final minutes. What is our ultimate motivation for repentance and for restoration and for renewal? What is the motive behind it? And trying to get underneath that when we are in that time, when we are turning our lives back to God, when we are repentant, when we are trying to ignite that devotion again and draw closer to him to really look carefully and consider what is the motivation that is behind it? Because it is interesting that back in chapter 12 and verse 2, that we were told that Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. In my paraphrase, because Jehoiadim told him to. Because he instructed him to. He was following exactly what we were supposed to do because he was told by Jehoiada to do it. The chronicler is far more severe in his ascertaining about the spirituality of Joash and that and observing this reality. He served God when Jehoiada was instructing, but didn't continue that once Jehoiada was no longer instructing him. And the question then of our motivation behind repentance is everything. Because true repentance and true renewal and true devotion is not built upon somebody telling you what to do. And I hope we would think about that idea for a minute. True repentance doesn't come from somebody having to tell you, well, here's what you need to do, or here's what you do next. And the reason why I think that is important for us to consider is because sometimes when we may be caught in sin or we're trying to get right with God, We can try to boil it down to, well, what do you want me to do? And if someone has to tell you what you need to do, then it's really not your repentance so much as you following what somebody told you to do. That a true heart of repentance is going to grasp what I need to do for God and what I need to do to change my life. To say it another way, serving God is not about fulfilling what everybody else's expectations are about what you should do. And sometimes we can boil it down to that. Well, we don't say it this way, but here's the mentality. Tell me what you want me to do so that you'll get off my back. Just tell me what you want so you'll leave me alone. That's not repentance. That's not true renewal. That's not restoration. Doing things because somebody says this is what you should do is not driven from the heart. And I would say it like this. Only you can really know what that repentance and that renewal would look like. I don't know what you've done. I don't know what changes you can make. I don't know where your heart is. I don't know what's happened. But you do. And you know what real repentance looks like. You know what changes you can make. You know what needs to be done. And if the only way we do something is because somebody said this is what you need to do, 
I submit to you, that's on the level of the obedience of Joash with Jehoiada. Well, I'll do good things because that's what you told me to do. But that's not faith. That's not building a trust in God. That's not looking to him and building that kind of relationship. It's just do what I need to do so that you leave me alone. Do what I need. Tell me what I need to do so that you're off my bank, so the church isn't angry, so my marriage isn't, isn't mad at me or whatever like that. We do those kinds of things. Just tell me what I need to do. And I think it is important that we would truly challenge ourselves to consider if our repentance really is coming from the heart. Or if it's coming from the heart of somebody else who has told us to do certain things. And here's what you need to do. And I'm afraid that so often we, we can couch our repentance and our renewal and our devotion simply into what somebody has told us to do. And I think it is so interesting that Joash makes it look like he is absolutely spot on. But it turns out the only reason why he seemed to be doing a lot of those things is because of the instructions of another priest. And when those instructions were not there, faith wasn't there. He didn't trust God and he didn't follow him in a way that he would then trust him when the king of Syria arose. I want us to think about this because in this image, we're seeing the same idea. God wants our repentance. He wants our devotion. He wants our restoration and our renewal because we see that Jesus has been established on his throne and has made a covenant with us. So that is why we want to get the idols out of our hearts. That's why we want to make changes. That's why we want tomorrow to be better than today. That's why our motivation is so strong that we want to serve him with all of our heart. That that's the reason why. Not because your spouse is on your back. Or the preacher's on your back. Or the leaders of the church are on your back. Or somebody's giving you a hard time. Or somebody's telling you the steps you need to do. And you're not really doing it because you have a heart for God. It is only when we have that kind of heart for God. That we won't be the soil like Jesus talked about. Because if it's not truly from your heart, your repentance and your devotion and your renewal. Then just like Jesus said, you receive the word with gladness, but when distress and difficulty come, you're not going to hold up because it's not yours. It's not your faith. It's not really your repentance. It's just externals that you've done to seemingly be right with God. A big picture here of what it really looks like to repent what it looks like to renew ourselves and what it looks like to restore ourselves back to God. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I'm afraid that it can be so easy to, to boil down our Our turning to you and our repentance to you is merely doing a few things that would seemingly 
be the right thing to do. That, Lord, we may far too often look at doing certain external steps rather than truly focusing on what's wrong with our hearts. And God, I pray that you would expose our hearts and help us to see if our love for you and our desire for you is truly from the heart. To help us see if we have a faith that is really grounded upon you or if it's grounded upon what others have told us to do or what we think might be the right thing to do. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for when we have merely looked at you and looked at this relationship as merely a bunch of rules, things to keep, what we're told to do, rather than seeking you with all of our heart. And so God, help us in that pursuit. Help us to see you as you want us to see you, as a father, and that we as children would desire to be with you no matter what. So Lord, forgive us of our sinning and steer us towards you. Give us the strength that we need. Encourage our hearts. And Lord, may it be true that this week would be far better than we've done in prior days, that our faith would be stronger, that we would be more resistant to temptation, and we would shine in a far better way to glorify you in all that we do and say. In Jesus' name, amen. It can be a challenge in thinking about that idea, and I find Joash to be such an interesting person in that, that it can be so easy to put forward the right veneer of doing right before God. But underneath all of that, only you can know if you have a faith that will hold on no matter what happens, no matter distress, persecution, or difficulty, only you know. And only you know what you can do to get right with God. You know what your sins are. You know what changes you need to make. You know what you need to do to get back on the right path. We're here to help you do that. But only you can get right with God. And we want you to consider your circumstances before God this very evening, that you would turn away from sin and follow him with all of your heart. If you haven't been immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, that is your starting point as you begin to walk with him in the days ahead. Can we help you in any way? Won't you come while we stand, while we sing?